Well, good morning, Two Rivers. Oh, it's, it's a privilege to be here with you here this morning to bring God's word to you. Thank you for Justin for leading. Um, you know, uh, as we dive into God's word here this morning, um, Pastor Jeremy emailed me and said, hey, you know, I'd love for you to come and guest preach, and we've been going through this series on Genesis, and so it, it's your choice. You can either continue on in the series in Genesis, or, or you can do a passage that, you know, is related to the series, and I asked him, well, what passage would that be in Genesis? And he said, well, it's Genesis 17 and the covenant of circumcision, so I said, you know, I think I'll go a different direction, and I'll, I'll let you take that one uh, for, for next week. Um, but I, I'd like to focus on a text here today that has been uh, really pressing on the theme of, of my life personally in the last two years, um, and I'm sure has been pressing upon all of you. Um, you know, like Pastor Jeremy, uh, my wife Paige and I, who's sitting in the front row here, uh, we moved up from, uh, moved down here rather, from up north. Uh, both of us were lifelong Marylanders, so go Terrapins, fear the turtle. And uh, we thought it was our plan to stay in Maryland doing life together forever. And then, all of a sudden, we had an unexpected COVID wedding. We had a canceled honeymoon, uh, a fake honeymoon. We canceled another honeymoon and almost didn't make our real honeymoon. Uh, then God's calling for Paige and my calling in ministry drastically changed over the period of four months. So we sold our house. We bought a house. We moved our entire lives to Charleston to start new ministry, new calling for me and, and schooling for Paige. And you know what they say, common wisdom says that in your first year of marriage, you don't make any major life changes, and we decided to do them all. And throughout that period of time, and anyone in this room who has been through major life transitions all at once, there's this worry that inevitably seeps in. Did you get this right? Did we get what God had planned for us? You know, and this is a worry that all of us will face at one period or another. But today we're going to look at God's word and we're going to talk about how we can understand what God's will is and what God's will isn't. And so go ahead, uh, turn, tap, swipe, rotate your Bibles to the book of James chapter 4, or you can look in your bulletins and this is verses 13 to 17. And uh, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word, James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This is God's word. Can we pray together? Father, we, we praise you this morning. Thank you for revealing your church, to your church your good, perfect, and pleasing will. That the will of the Lord is far greater and better than anything we could ever imagine or dream. That it's your will that brings us the best made plans because you are the great maker. 
Let your word speak clearly to us through the spirit of God working in it now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there is an interesting phenomenon happening in the world of television these days. I don't know if you've caught it, and it's this theme that's happening, and everyone's jumping onto this idea of alternate universes, right? I'm, no, I'm talking about alternate universes. This is an idea that, that isn't new, right? You know, Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, Tom Cruise and the sci-fi thriller Live, Die, Repeat, right? But, but lately, Hollywood has been like leaning into this premise really hard, you know, the idea of variance in the Loki series, which has been awesome. The idea of different career and romantic pathways in the NBC sitcom Ordinary Joe. Imagining what would have happened if World War II was won by Hitler and the Man in the High Castle. To reimagining the universe of the Wonder Years through new characters. There are different parallel pathways of Marvel superheroes in the What If series. There's this huge demand, clearly, from studios and viewers to think about the possibility of what would happen if the choices or events in our lives we're just a little bit different. Now, why is there is this obsession? Um, you know, I believe this is because so many people want to explore the idea that perhaps there is a better life to live than the one we currently have. We believe that if we could do it all over again, we could have said the right thing to land that job, grab that opportunity, have that sort of perfect, successful life that would have solved everything, we would avoid the regrets in life that we have now. That somehow, you know, if we could be like God, we could control the variables that would make our lives just a little bit better, you know, just a little bit more different. Now, while it is certainly true that our choices and decisions define the situations in our lives that we find ourselves in, the idea that we could fashion the perfect life for ourselves if we just find the right maze pathway is a prevailing lie, and it's the prevailing lie of history. It's the prevailing lie that we tell ourselves. It's the reason why lottery winners are bankrupt within the first couple of years, why so many of us here today are paralyzed by choices and decisions, and why those who chase celebrity and fame often wind up regretting the endeavor entirely. You see, this is the heart of the warning that James is exhorting the church here in verses 13 and 14 of our text here today. He's extending his conversation from the beginning of chapter 4 on selfishness, and now he's talking about how selfishness plays out in our lives when we try and play God. So in verse 13, where he writes, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. We need to kind of dissect this a little bit. You see, James is speaking to a cultural context that he was wary of the church kind of embracing the cultural wave and title of his time. The first century cities of Palestine were areas of great commercial activity. And the Jews that James would know would, would see around them, they would see the economic opportunities available to them with a large amount of people coming into these surrounding cities. It, it was sort of the, the first century gold rush, the first century cryptocurrency, the, the Bitcoin opportunity of the moment, right? And the end goal for the Jews and really for the culture was the same. Gather as much wealth as you can in the shortest amount of time so that you would be, in the eyes of yourself, in the eyes of the world, successful, happy, 
and content. Now, from the standpoint of ambition, this certainly doesn't seem like an evil goal, does it? You know, if you, you parents in the room today, if you had a child who had ambition and goals and was planning out their future and a way to execute it, I mean, you'd be pretty happy with your child. You'd be pretty happy with that. In fact, this idea of making plans and having a godly ambition isn't, isn't an anti-biblical idea. Scripture repeatedly talks about in Proverbs about the wisdom of, of having foresight, of taking initiative and being wise in everything, including your career and your finances. So, so why then the warning? Why is the book of James warning us about this kind of ambition? What's different in verse 14 than the rest of Scripture? You see, this isn't about saying it's a sin to make plans. It's not about the sin of making money or generating wealth. This, this isn't all about any of that. James's warning here in verse 14 is trying to carve out a calling that is apart from the will of God. He's trying to carve out a calling that is apart from the will of God, working through self-autonomy, working through your own selfishness. And when we do this, James wants to snap us back to reality through the measure of reminding us of who we are, not as creator, but as creatures. The limitations of being in the potter's hands. James wants us to, us, us to remember that there is so much to, more to our plans than the here and now of our lives. And in particular, there's just two things that I want us to glean from verses 13 and 14. Number one, apart from God, there is no definitive pathway to the perfect life that we can make on our own. Apart from God, there is no definitive pathway to the perfect life that we can make on our own. This is why... James says, you have no idea what tomorrow may bring. All the good, the bad, the ugly of it all. In fact, the belief that you made the perfect choice is often followed by seeing the imperfections and flaws in the choices that you made. This is exactly why buyer's remorse exists. This is exactly why the housing market here in Charleston has, has shot up in the past year. No one is satisfied with what they've made the, their choices in. You see, the second problem is that your idea of what the perfect future is, is in and of itself temporary and short-lived. Your life comes and goes, and your ambition comes and goes as fast as mist and vapor. Now, what James is not saying here is that because you are a mist and vapor, your, your life's choices and plans are inconsequential. He's not saying that. Rather, he's speaking to the level of degree of pride and arrogance that one has in placing their hope and their future apart from God. Placing a hope in the future of their lives when God's view of eternity has the greatest picture of our futures than we ever could have. In other words, it's not that the person making plans is making meaningless plans. It's that they're trying to make plans apart from the one who knows the end of the story. In other words, the fool has an idea of what is good, but not the whole picture. And James here is creating a contrast between a finite humanity and an infinite God. That is why, if you look at the verse 14 with me, 
Look deeper. The word for know, that's in verse 14, the word knowledge. Out of the three words that James could have used in the original language of Scripture, he picks the simplest, most banal word for knowledge that he could have picked. It's, it's the idea of having a very terse knowledge, a very limited knowledge, someone who has an idea but not really understands the weight of the full picture of the choices and the decisions that they're making. Uh, you know, perhaps the best analogy of this I can give is, is planning a wedding. Uh, the end goal of every husband and wife planning a wedding is the same, right? Plan the most perfect wedding of all time. Now, how does that usually go for most couples, right? I don't, I don't mean to re-stress anyone in the room here that's been through wedding planning, right? But, but, but you remember that, that, that period of time, right? What's it really like planning it? Get all of your family and friends together to meet at a specific tame, time of day on a specific day of a week that makes every single one of your family and friends happy. Organize food allergies and preferences so that no one dies during your reception. Find a beautiful venue that has natural sunlight, stained glass windows, historical significance, and a good sound system. Get a photographer who can make you look completely natural in all of your staged photos. Knows your best angles for the Instagram. Pick a DJ who isn't going to ruin the entire wedding by playing one is the loneliest number as your entrance song. Pick the perfect flowers out of the four million types of species of flowers that exist in the world. Pick the color of table runners, which at this point in your life, you never even thought about a table runner ever. But now apparently if you pick the wrong one, everyone will hate you because your wedding colors clashed. And most of all, have fun and relax and make sure everyone has a good time. (laughs) Do you see the futility? of trying to map out a perfect day, even, right? We can't even get a wedding ceremony right. So what chance do we have for all of life? So if making our own visions of the future isn't how we're supposed to do it, then what does Scripture say is the remedy? This is where we get to verse 15 of our passage, and the correction is given here of a qualifier that we need to put in front of all of our plans. If the Lord wills, we will do, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. Now here we arrive at what I would like to spend the bulk of our time in this passage today. Because I think this phrase is perhaps one of the most misunderstood phrases in all of scripture. And it's the phrase of if God wills or if the Lord wills. And so I want to break this down by help us first understand that when we talk about the will of God, we're really talking about the will of God in three different capacities, three different ways. And we get in trouble when we mean the will of God to mean something that it's not supposed to mean. So let's dive into it. Here's the first will when we talk about the will of God, and that is God's decreed will. It's also known as the decreative will of God, but God's decreed will. This is sometimes known as the secret will of God. If you know your scriptures in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it talks about how God reveals certain things to us, but the secret things belong to him. Now, this one and this will, the decreed will of God or the decreative will of God is perhaps the will of God that gets Christians in the most trouble. Now, why do I say this? 
Because the danger is that Christians will try and chase, will try and discover, if they read the tea leaves right, if they, if they, if they figure out all the signs of all the things that are around them, sort of like this Da Vinci Code hack of everything, they will be able to discover God's secret will. And not only that, they'll be able to discover God's secret, specific will for the perfect life. These Christians will say, you know, if you really press the right buttons, if you date the right person, if you find the right job in the right time, in the right location, then you will discover this perfectly blessed life that you were meant to live because you found it. You found God's secret will. And it's a lie. There's no way you can know God's secret will. And more often than that, I really want you to consider why this is true. Because I really want you to consider what your life would really look like if you try to live life this way. See, if you could discover God's secret will, if you really just tried, then you would be paralyzed. And here's what I mean by this. At some point, you would be able to realize that you couldn't live coherently because if it's not just in the big decisions where you can find God's secret will, then then it follows then that every little decision, every single moment, every single step you take must be in accordance with this somehow secret will of God. What exact time should you have left your house this morning in order to live the perfectly blessed life? The answer is not 910, all right? Uh, what if, all right, the breakfast you ate, the shoe that you put on this morning, which shoe you put on, was against God's secret will, and there was only one pathway to the blessed life. I don't know about you, but I would be completely numb if that was true, that we could somehow discover God's secret will, right? What if eating the wrong breakfast cereal was out of accordance with God's secret will for that day, and it ruined everything in your pathway, What if you chose the wrong tie to wear for that guest preaching gig and it was out of accordance with God's secret will and all they did was look at your tie instead of listening what you had to say on that Sunday morning? That would be a paralyzing way to live your life. And none of you, by the way, live functionally that way. You go about your everyday decisions normally and with the best intention and the knowledge of what you have. So anyone that is saying, you know what, I have found the secret of finding God's secret will cannot be telling you the truth. And by the way, if God really is God, there should be no way to gain access to the omniscient, all-knowing being who has meticulously carved out your story. Otherwise, then you would be God. You cannot in any way, shape, or form hope to come into an understanding of God's decreed will because it is unsearchable and unknowable. And Scripture tell us, tells us that. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. There's a sense in which God's will will remain unknowable. And that's how it should be if a creator is supposed to be distinct from his creation. So, In verse 15, the phrase, if the Lord wills, is not referring to the sense that a person will absolutely know the pathway to the future. It's acknowledgement. If the Lord wills, it's acknowledgement that the Lord is working in a way that is unseen, that we cannot even begin to understand, but we will know and accept and trust and have faith in what's to come. There's a second sense in which the Lord's will is talked about, and that is God's moral will. 
When we talk about the Lord's will, we're talking about God's moral will. This is sometimes called God's preceptive will. So there's the decreative will, right? And then there's the perceptive will or God's moral will, his revealed will. This is the will of God as it relates to God's commandments, right? Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, right? Thou shalt not gossip, right? All those different things. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is God's revealed will. This is the sum of all the commandments, And so when we're referring to God's will in this situation, we're referring to the idea that God is never going to tell you to do something, is never going to plan out your future in such a way that is going against God's commands. To make the Lord do so is go to go against completely against his character of who he is. All right, so the best illustration of this as I can find in scripture, um, there's this little known story in the book of Judges. And there's a judge by the name of Jephthah. And some of you know this story. Uh, in short, Jephthah makes a vow to the Lord saying, hey, look, we need to redeem Israel and I need to win this battle. So Lord, if I win this battle, I will sacrifice the first person that comes out of my house to greet me when we win. All right, so he makes this vow to the Lord and who's the first person to come out of his house? It's his one and only daughter. All right? And so the question that judges raise, the book of Judges raise as you read this passage in scripture is, what's Jephthah going to do? Is he going to sacrifice his daughter and keep his vow to the Lord? Should he have even made that vow? But now that he's made it, does he keep it? And here's the tragedy of this passage here. The answer lies in the fact that Jephthah should have read his Bible more. He should have seen in Scripture and he should have seen in the Old Testament law that he could have redeemed his daughter with silver. But the tragedy of the story is that neither Jephthah nor his daughter nor any of his friends or his advisors or even the priests know God's will in Numbers chapter 18. And so because of that, Jephthah goes about against God's moral will thinking that he's actually fulfilling a promise he's made to the Lord. You see, God's moral will is revealed to us fully in this book. And the unforced error that many Christians make is that they don't know this book well enough. So when they're trying to make their decisions about life, they're trying to make their decisions about their future, they neglect the very wisdom that's presented here in the words of Scripture. In other words, God's moral will should be a free throw for many Christians. Instead, most Christians are like Shaquille O'Neal or Ben Simmons. You just miss it. This is why whenever we think throughout our futures in the eyes of God, we need to think through the fact that nothing we plan for in the future should go against God's revealed moral will. Anytime our futures go against God's words, it's not going to go well for us. Only when we are walking in the truth and we are able to see our lives and our futures clearly can we then look in Scripture and say, you know what, this is the best pathway I know because God has promised this already through his word. So in verse 15, when it says, "If if the Lord wills, it's assuming God's secret will, that he will guide us in the unknown, and it's assuming that we're following in along in accordance with Scripture. Finally, third will. The third will is the will of disposition. God's will of disposition. 
What this means is is the will of God's heart towards his people. This is the will of God in in the same definition in the sense of if you parents in the room of, of what you wish your children to be, what you wish your children to become, how you wish your children would treat others. Right? This is uh, the will of God that says, you know, you know, the longing and the desire right, for us to follow a certain pathway, even though in, in God's free will that he's given to us, right, that we may choose to go in a different direction. The will of his children to follow him and listen. This is the, the compassion of the Lord towards his people. This is the Jesus Christ who is gentle and lowly in heart towards sinners. This is, this is, this is the idea of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, which God desires all men to be saved, even though there are those who are not in the elect. This is the Jesus who had compassion on the crowds. The will of disposition, God's will, is his heart towards his people. Out of the three wills that we are talking about here, this is the one that demonstrates something important for us to understand, something incredibly unique about the Christian position. You see, there are plenty of world religions that teach the idea that, that you know, we follow God's will, God's will is to be done, that, that God's will is something that we should submit to. Indeed, most people who have the problem with God's sovereignty have, have the category of, of like sort of mocking religions and how to say, they say, oh, you're just a fatalist. You're just a fatalist. You know, a fatalist is a person who, who resigns himself and doesn't care about what happens. There's no compassion. It's, it's cold. It's, it's the frozen chosen idea. It's the idea that that song, that song over and over, que sera, sera, right? Whatever will be, will be. Or that, that Linkin Park song, for those of you heavy metal fans, like, I tried so hard, I got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter, Right, or sad country songs about, you know, this ain't nothing, you know, I've, whatever. They just, that's fatalism, all right? Um, so what separates Christianity, what separates this idea of if God wills and fatalism? More importantly, how can Christians say that they know that the will of God is good for us, that his, his will of disposition for us is compassion and love? Well, it's all revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, only in Christianity, apart from all these other religions, do we say that not only God himself wills our lives and has a will for our life, but he, not only he lays down sort of the moral framework in God's moral will, uh, that's not new to other religions. But, but the kicker in Christianity is that we believe that God became man, became incarnate became a living human being, that that this person of God embodies the very lives that we live, the same emotions, the same pain, the same suffering, that that the will of God is good and righteous and holy because, and we can trust in that because he knew what we went through. He walked among us. It was the will of the Father to have Jesus, his Son, suffer many things for the sake of the people that he loved. It was the Son, Jesus Christ, who one of his final prayers before he faces the cross tells the Father, Lord, what? Not my will, but yours be done, my Lord. The God who is here and the God who is near allows us to submit our wills up to the Lord because the Son of God shows us what it means to submit to the will of the Father. 
and we can trust in the plan that he has for us in the future is good. We can trust when we say, if the Lord wills, that God's plan for us is the best. Why? Because we look back to the cross and see that he has already taken away our sins. We look back to the cross and we see the perfect righteousness that we do not deserve. We look back at the cross and that has secured eternity in heaven with him in fellowship. As a a famous writer, uh, B.B. Warfield describes it, the difference between fatalism and sovereignty is understanding the difference between falling into the grinding power of a machine versus falling into the loving hands of the Father. You see? You see the difference there? You see how radically this puts your futures and plans that you make into perspective. Without God, you're making plans believing you are God that the future is yours to command, but that's silly because you have, you have no way that you could actually know that. But if you say, I'm going to submit to God's decreed will, I'm going to submit to his moral will, I'm going to trust that whatever he wills for me is good, that his heart towards me is good, then you can go forward and make plans now in this way because knowing whatever direction, whatever way that they go, God's plan is far greater and better than what you could have ever imagined. Even if you face setbacks, difficulty, trial, trauma, you can overcome them. Because Christ has has not just modeled this for us in his life, but he has demonstrated that for us on the cross. See, it's about decentering yourself and your plans and your will and, and centering yourself on the person of Christ. Do you see how also this changes the way that we view this current age and period that we are in right now? Do you remember all the experts saying like last February of of 2020 that, oh, you know, we'll be out of this mess by the fall, right? Do do, Do you personally just feel pulled in every direction about what you need to do in order to be considered one of the good guides, good guys, by the, the, the tribe or the political party that, that you, you want to be associated with, the friend group that you want to be associated with? Do you, do you feel hopeless and maybe numb to step out and make sort of any choice, any sort of conviction on anything because you're either afraid of what may come of it or you're afraid of, of all the bad that could result from it? And, and, and here's the answer. If the Lord wills, enables you to guide yourself out of all of that. If, if the Lord will, reminds you that the pressure is off for you to play God. So go and live according to his word and the convictions that the scripture and the spirit has given you without the worry whether or not that you have missed it. If the Lord wills, will get you to stop fantasizing about the past and about what direction you should or could have gone and start looking instead for the pathway of wisdom the pathway that our great shepherd is leading you on. If the Lord wills, will get you to stop being trapped by tribalism or feeling as though your will has to be guided by the approval of the masses. It allows you to be critical of your own camp and and your own tribe because, see, you're no longer at this point trying to please man, but you're trying to please God. A lot of people... Um, and I'll end with this. A lot of people expect God's plan to be revealed to us like a GPS, Google Maps, ways, right? In 0.5 miles, don't date that person, right? <laughs> right? 
a mile here, take this job, move to this house, right? Don't buy that house, right? The subfloor is messed up and the realtors didn't tell you, right? We expect God's plan to work through us like that. But you don't need a turn-by-turn instruction on exactly where you need to go. That's not how God's will works. God has given us a lot of liberty in our lives. That as long as we're obeying scripture and as long as we're living with, with the goal of glorifying him, and as long as we hold our plans with an open hand, your job, who you marry, what, what causes you choose to champion in life, your ambitions for your kids, these are all things that we have much freedom in. And, and if it doesn't violate scripture, then we can go out and forth and step out in faith and knowing that God's will is going to be revealed to us in due time. And God's will, each step of the way, will not tell you the exact place that you need to go, but will guide you like a shepherd guides the sheep. It's the compass, not GPS, the compass of God's direction that will lead us exactly where we need to be and exactly where we need to go. You can trust in God's will each step of the way just to give you enough light for the step that you're on, as my mother-in-law always says to look back on the cross and trust and know that the Lord is good because Christ, our great shepherd, has walked alongside us and is leading us home. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that reveals to us the pathway of wisdom. Lord, to not live with the, somehow the regret that we've missed it, but to know and trust in your secret will, to obey your written word, and to know that your heart for us is good because we have seen Christ come on and live among us. We have seen Christ himself submit to the Father's will and in doing so model for us and knowing how to walk and live this life. Lord, for those of us who are scared, confused, worried, anxious about every life choice, Father, may we take this moment to decenter ourselves in our selfishness and our boasting about what will happen and lay out all of our plans, all of our hopes and dreams to the God of the universe that knows everything that is going to happen and trusting that it is for our good and your glory. We thank you for this time in your word today. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.